Ladies and gentlemen, let me just say that this week we are reviewing St. John Restaurant in London and airplane food. But before we get to that, let me also just say, I'm Brian Clark, and welcome to Season 2 of Let's Talk About Chef. Let's review airplane food. Humans flying has not been around for a very long time. It wasn't that long ago that to get around we sat on horses or rode in carriages or took trains and even sailed across the ocean, although you can still do that. If you wanted to travel to England from North America for, say, someone's wedding, you boarded a ship and sailed for 66 days. 66 days on a boat hoping that your fresh water didn't run out and you would die on that ship lost at sea. That wasn't that long ago. And then, on November 21st, 1783, the first manned flight happened. And in just a few hundred years of aviation technology, it's now possible for me to sit on a chair in the sky going 600 miles per hour and be in London, England in less than five hours. So I am fully aware that complaining about eating food whilst hurtling through the sky and watching television is quite possibly very ridiculous and privileged, and that we as humans need to calm down and realize that we are living in possibly, even COVID aside, the greatest time to be alive as human beings, and we need to stop complaining about everything so much. With that being said, airplane food is fucking terrible, and I'm going to talk about it. The first ever airline meal was served in 1919 on a Handley Page flight from London to Paris, and the food available was cold fried chicken, fruit salad, and whatever elegant composed sandwiches means, all served in small wicker baskets with china plates. By the 1930s, kitchens started to be installed on planes, and the idea of simply serving sandwiches shifted to offering of all things, actual well-cooked meals by chefs that were on board. Because aviation was still new and planes couldn't go as far as they can now, planes would actually land to refuel on long flights, and flight attendants would set up tables and chairs on the runway, and food would be served to passengers while the plane got ready to be airborne again. By the 1940s, frozen meals started to take over, and planes could simply heat up frozen meals. It was also around this time that airplanes started shifting away from real glassware to plastic that could be thrown away, eliminating the needs for crews to wash dishes in between flights. And because food could be frozen, that meant that more options could be made available for different flights. Despite frozen food being popular for airlines by the 1960s, the golden age of flying was in full swing with airlines like Air France and British Airways offering guests champagne, caviar, black truffles, even lobster, and that was all guests. Flying during this time was luxury, it was fun, and the food served on board these flights showed that. And then, like all things, money began to take over and airlines started trying to figure out how to make more and more money off of passengers, and one of the easiest ways to do that is to start to skimp on the food. 
In the late 1980s, Robert Crandall, who was the CEO of American Airlines, saved $40,000 a year by simply removing one single olive from every salad served in first class. Now, let's cut to today and food costing. And honestly, the stuff I'm about to say to you was harder to find than pretty much anything else I have ever tried to research for this show. An economy class meal on an airline today costs that airline around $4 to make per person. A business class meal is around $20 per person. And for first class passengers, their meals can cost up to $100. Whenever you hear an airline promoting in-flight dining, they are almost always talking about what goes on in first class. And the reason that there are curtains separating the poor people from the rich ones is that us poor bastards in economy don't get to see the food and beverages being served five feet away in rich land and causing a problem. Now, flying on an airline is frankly a terrible experience. If you're flying economy, you are crammed into seats that are too small, too close to another human being, and then you are somehow supposed to eat something akin to hot garbage, bumping elbows and trying to saw your way through a microwave piece of what I could only assume used to be chicken with a dull plastic knife. The most terrifying part of flying is when they hand you the plastic cup of hot coffee or tea and you walk that scary little tightrope of terror trying not to burn yourself while waiting for the liquid to cool down to a drinkable temperature and pray that you don't hit turbulence and everything goes on your lap. And as it turns out, a lot of people get burnt a year. In North America alone, around 1,600 people get burnt from hot beverages on planes and hundreds of people get hit by the drinks cart and break all sorts of bones and fingers by clumsy carts being shoved down the aisles while they serve their crap. Oh, and a random fact. Apparently, airlines serve you hot coffee or tea with water from their water tanks on board, which makes sense. But their water tanks only get cleaned four times a year, which is kind of messed up when you think about it. You would think that in today's day and age, with people being interested in food more than ever, that airlines would have figured out a way to offer something different than what they serve. Then again, flying isn't really a great experience anymore. Long gone are the days of the golden age of flying, and we accept that we are going to be crammed into a metal tube, too close for comfort with strangers, and for a few hours, hurtle through the sky and pop out on the other side of the world for what accounts to not really a lot of money or time. It's a trade-off. And in the end, flying is not about the journey, it's about the destination. It would just be nice if it wasn't so terrible. I'm giving airplane food one star.
Season 2, Episode 1 of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by American Airlines. No, I'm just kidding. That'd be fucking hilarious, though. Hey, everyone, it's Brian, and I want to talk to you about the New York Times. Did you know that the New York Times is now available for only 50 cents a week for a digital subscription? That means that for only $2 a month, you can have full access to the world's leading newspaper from your smartphone or whatever digital device you use to read things on. Reading and getting our news from a trusted source like the New York Times is so important, and especially with all the fake news that companies like Facebook allow into their sites. Because they are awful, awful, evil corporations that only want to get more money by tricking people into clicking on ads for fake news articles and then using their scary algorithms to cater clickbait to each and every one of you individually so that they will make a few cents to add to their billions of evil dollars. New York Times doesn't do that. Get a digital subscription to the New York Times for 50 cents a week. And now, back to the show. There are certain spaces that are considered to be holy ground that have been made by man. If you are a baseball fan, then seeing the Boston Red Sox play at Fenway Park comes to mind. If you are into live music, going to Madison Square Garden to see someone like Billy Joel or Elton John perform is something that is probably on your bucket list. If you like the Beatles and you go to England and don't have a picture of you crossing the crosswalk in front of Abbey Road Studios, are you really a Beatles fan? These places contain magic. They contain something of a folklore. You can't help but get swept up in the majesty and sheer emotion of a place that is considered to be sacred. And if, if you are into food, restaurants, or chefs, then probably one of the most important places you can go is St. John Bread and Wine in East London. The bare white walls, the minimalistic tables, the servers wearing chef's whites, we have all seen pictures, read books, and watched countless videos about that restaurant about that room in London that launched a million other restaurants. From its humble grounds, it gave way to something seemingly simple and everywhere, like bone marrow with parsley salad. If you have seen the words bone marrow on a menu, it is because of St. John and its patron saint, Fergus Henderson. I am not ashamed at all to say that I am a 35-year-old man that nearly burst into tears four times in that restaurant. This review is going to be simple. It's going to be about me, a grown man with a beard covered in tattoos that is generally considered to be tough, almost broke down sobbing out of the sheer overwhelming gratitude I had for being in that space, that room, and that most revered of restaurants. So, with that being said, let's review St. John. I never thought that I would be able to go back to Europe as an adult. I never thought that I would be able to walk the streets of London again, drink Guinness in a real pub, 
eat in some of the most beloved places across the ocean for me because, quite frankly, I was a total fuck-up when it came to money for the better part of my adult life. But a few months ago, I found myself watching my partner Sarah say that all she wanted to do was travel again, that all she wanted to do was go and see something that wasn't our house and our businesses. We had both had had a hard year and a half. COVID was tough for everyone. Being locked down sucked for everyone. And although we had grown closer than I ever thought it was possible to be with another human being, she was stressed and tired and wanted to get away for a minute, and so did I. I was traveling to my uncle's funeral with my father when the idea struck me that we should go to England and France, and more specifically that we should go to London and Paris, because for the last 14 years I had daydreamed about Paris pretty much every single day, when, as a stupid 21-year-old, I wandered the left bank and ate my face off. It was my white whale. It was my unicorn and I wanted to go back. Also, Sarah had never been before, and that excited me. I had gone on the eye in London and been to the British Museum and the National Gallery as a teenager, but she had never been before, and so seeing all of that again with somebody that hadn't experienced it was exciting. When later that day I told her we were going to Europe in the small 10-day window she had between events, we were excited and happy and looking forward to traveling, and that's when I started to think about St. John Bread and Wine. Standing outside of St. John, which is located in East London on a random street next to a closed taco shop, you would be forgiven if you didn't immediately understand why this restaurant is Mecca for cooks. It is a small restaurant that is painted white and that's it. But that didn't stop me from wondering why people were just walking by it and not giving it any mind, not even looking in its window. You look in down the hallway of an old smokehouse that it used to be before Fergus Henderson changed it into the restaurant it is still today. I could understand why people didn't, but it still made me incredibly angry. We were very early for our 7 o'clock reservation because I had forced Sarah to get ready and get into a cab with around two hours to spare in case for some reason the taxi got a flat tire or blew up or we had to get another one. I honestly would have crawled on the cobblestones for two hours to get there, but we made it, and so we sat across the street drinking a glass of wine at a pretty cool little wine bar and waited. When the time came close to seven, we got up, walked across the street, and the young woman who greeted us at the door asked for my name. I said, Brian Clark. She said, oh, we've been expecting you. The cooks are excited you're here. We gave you a special table. And that's when I finally started to understand what was about to happen. We walked behind her up the stairs and into the restaurant, into the white-walled and bustling, musicless dining room, where we were greeted by our waiter who immediately told me that the kitchen was excited I was there, which humbled me beyond anything I could explain. And then he walked us over to a table and sat alone in center of the room. That table has been made famous because it's where Anthony Bourdain sat every time he came. That's the first time I almost broke down. I did not expect to be overcome with emotion, and I do not know why sitting at that table almost broke me, but it did. We of course ordered the bone marrow and we of course ordered the rare bit and the pork belly salad and the bread that's made in the kitchen. When the bone marrow arrived, I again was awestruck by how something so simple and easy could have the absolute power to change as much as it has. That dish alone made British food important. And I was sitting there on the table where it started and I stared at it. I know again that this doesn't make any sense to somebody that doesn't know anything about St. John or how important St. John is to chefs, but pretty much every chef I have ever met, and when St. John inevitably comes up in the conversation, the conversation grows quiet, and you whisper about that place that hopefully one day you will get to go, and I was there. 
A lot of things happened in that room. I realized that not having any music playing in the dining room is actually one of the most genius aspects of that restaurant. Every restaurant I have ever been in plays music. Music is so important for creating a vibe, creating an energy, and allowing the chef to usually show what kind of mood they want you to be in. Hell, I've literally made entire episodes about music in restaurants, and there is none in St. John. And that's because all you hear is the kitchen, and the happiness of people around you is a dull roar that just kind of wraps you up all in it. It's something that I would never have the guts to do in a restaurant, and there it works, and it's comforting. Towards the end of the meal, I was escorted to the pass in the open kitchen and chatted with the chef de cuisine for a while. I met the sous chef and some cooks, and we talked about the food. I thanked them endlessly for the meal, and they thanked me for coming to their restaurant. The cooks at St. John are from all over the world, and they were all there for the same reason that I was, because going to St. John is important, and they took it one step further and uprooted their lives to work there. But being there talking to them made me realize something that I wasn't expecting. Really amazing restaurants have the ability to make me forget that I'm a chef. When we as cooks go into a restaurant, we analyze everything, every decision, every plating, and every movement of the staff. We can't help it. And I've said before on this show in the past, it's no different than a film student who can't enjoy watching movies anymore, or a lighting director not being able to go enjoy going to a play. It's our job, and it's what we do and who we are. But there are very few restaurants on this earth that somehow possess the power to make us forget what we are and let us get lost in the experience. And when that happens, it's honestly one of the closest things to magic I can personally ever experience. I realize now that all of the restaurants I've talked about on this show had that ability, that magic thing, that we as cooks and chefs chase down. And restaurants like St. John still possess the power to make me forget what I am and where I am and make me enjoy every single second of the experience. I will never have a restaurant like St. John. I will never be a chef of a restaurant that is anything as close to as important as St. John is. And that's fine. And it's also very likely that nobody listening to this podcast will. And that's okay. Because St. John made me realize that it doesn't matter if your restaurant is famous or well-known. It doesn't matter if you are famous or well-known. If you don't have cooks that are willing to spend thousands of dollars for flights to come and eat and work with you. What does matter is that you are cooking food for people at a time when people need comforting food more than ever. People need bone marrow, people need bread, and people need wine. But more than that, people need a place that somehow has the power to make everything feel special. And it's restaurants like St. John, and hopefully the one that you're working in, that know that and knew that all along. I honestly hope that you get to go one day. But in the meantime, keep making food for people that come to your places and your homes because that's what's important. I also realize that no restaurant or cook that opens a place does it to be famous. I never did. You don't make it to make a landmark destination. And if you are, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Opening a place like St. John was open because of the passion that Fergus Henderson had for British country cooking. That's it. And he wanted to feed it to people. He wanted to make food for people that he loved, and hopefully they would love it too. And that, my friends, is the secret. It's why so many restaurants have opened that have tried to copy St. John and failed. Because the passion for the original spark isn't there. If you are a cook listening to this, and chances are that you are, then realize that simply by waking up in the morning and wanting to feed people makes you different and special. We are a strange breed of human. 
And even though the idea of owning your own St. John seems insane, it's not about that. It's about being a cook and cooking for people in a place that means the world to you with a style of food that you love and that you want to share with others. And if you can do that, be humble, and try your fucking hardest, people are going to find out about it and show up. If anything, St. John made me realize that. I'm giving St. John five stars. I hope that you enjoyed the first episode of season two of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark. We are so excited to be back for another season of this show that has grown so much in the last few months of my absence, and I'm looking forward to the coming months of episodes. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to let's talk about chef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I want to thank the New York Times, and more importantly, you for listening. If you can do us one favor and let someone know you would think would enjoy the show about it, we would be eternally grateful. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for this episode was by Cat Power, pretty much the entire kind of blue album by Miles Davis. Our theme song, Cone of Light, is by the Almighty Defenders, and you're about to listen to Queen Jane, approximately by Bob Dylan. All music is made available courtesy of Spotify. Download the Spotify app and find out what you've been missing. We will be back next week with another new episode, and so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service, and have a great week. When your mother sends back all your invitations And your father to your sister, he explains That you're tired of yourself and all of your creations Won't you come see me? Yeah.